Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Adelia. This is my grassroots podcast, Our Moral Imperative. And we are focusing um, this month, we were focusing on white people um, for race unity. Um, and this is our final one. This is the fourth one. And I'm kind of sad because it's also the last time that me and Rob are going to get to have these conversations. He was my intern um, for the last three months, and he's done a phenomenal job on um, doing the research for this podcast, but then also he's done a phenomenal job on the content that he's created for my TikTok and Instagram channels, um, Inspire Cycle Breakers. So wherever you are, if you're in your car or eating lunch at a at a lunch table somewhere or you're making lunch at home, I want you to stop for a moment and clap. Because <laughs> Rob did a great job. Um, so um, the song that was playing as, as we were coming in um, is Bob Dylan's Times They Are A-Changin'. And the idea is that although change has been slow for some of us, change is happening. And so maintaining a sense of hope and, and um, optimism about the future. Um, so, um, and, and in that vein of remaining optimistic and hopeful about the future, this podcast um, was, is meant to inspire white people into action by hearing the stories of white people who have committed their lives to anti-racism efforts. So who are the three people that we are gonna talk about today? And could you tell them where they can find me um, for the podcasts? Yeah, first I just wanna say thank you for the thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so the, for our final week, we have people you may have never heard of before. We have Olympe de Gouges, Walter Ruther and John Humphrey and you can find the podcast on Pocket Casts, Google Casts and Spotify and the information that we're talking about is going to be on TikTok and Instagram. Yes thank you so much and so let's just jump right in because this was the one I think we were both really excited about because I'd never heard of any of these people and I'm interested to find out kind of what Robert found out about them and, and work they in the work that these folks did around um, race unity. So let's start with the first one. Who do you want to start with, Rob? So our first one is Olympe de Gouges, who was born as Mary Gouges. She was a French playwright in the 1700s, best known for her declaration. Declaration of Rights of Women and of the Female Citizen and other writings on women's rights and abolitionism. And she has this play that it was like her best known play. It was about um, anti-slavery. It was called Zamor and Mirza. And it was about two escaped slaves who flee to a desert island after one of them has killed the plantation's foreman. And it's a very interesting play. Mm. And also, she had also made plays and pamphlets spanning a wide variety of issues, such as divorce and marriage, children's rights, unemployment, and wow. social security. 
she challenged the male authority and advocated for equal rights of women. That was her main thing though. So her main thing was like feminism and women's rights, but she also mm. touched on everything. She was one of France's earliest public opponents of slavery. Wow, that's I did I did not know this woman. Yes. At all. And it sounds like she did amazing activism, amazing work around these these social justice issues. Um, I wonder about the play, if that play has ever been kind of done in a more like in in our current climate, it would be interesting to see that play. Me too, because done, I, yeah. the video that I watched this video and she had, there was this philosopher and she said that it was a very like impactful play for the time. Mm. So wow. I really wonder what that would be like. What that but would I'm be sure like. you could find like a script or something so you can get an idea. Because this was a play from the late 1700s. So I'm sure there's some translated version of and it. What was the name of the play again? Zamor and Mirza. Zamor and Mirza. So anyone listening, if you want to look more into Olympe de Gouche and this play, Zemmour and Mirza, please do so. I think that this is, this would be a wonderful, hey, if anybody's listening, who's either, who produces, who does play productions and direction and directs plays, hey, could be a good opportunity to bring this play back to life. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, that, it would be interesting to see how, like I said before, how that would, how it would be received in the current climate that we're in now. It really would be. Yeah. Okay. Well, Especially thank you for, such a yeah, go ahead. To media. Oh, no, I was just, just going to say, just because mm -hmm. it's such a unique piece of media, it's, yes. a, it's like a whole play. It's not like, like a, like a rally or it's not like a speech. It's like, it's a, you wouldn't think like civil rights and play would line up, but it does. And it's very, well, and especially during that time. Like if you mm -hmm. think the 1700s, I mean, that was like the height, the heyday of the slave trade. I mean, it wasn't for another almost a hundred years, maybe later before there was the initial, like it was against the law to, take anybody to go to, to the continent of Africa and take people. It became against the law to actually ship people. And that, you know, that was at least a hundred years later before that actually happened. So for her to like create this play in the middle of like, you know, France is making tons of money off slavery. Britain is making tons of money off slavery, Portugal, Spain, like Denmark, like all these, these European countries are making tons of money off of slavery. And for her to like have a voice as a woman in that time is yeah. absolutely phenomenal. It's, that is inspiring. That's inspiring. And, and yet, and, and again, what was it like 
three, two or three episodes ago, we talked about women mm-hmm. and like how each one of those women, not they, they did work specifically around racism, but they were also feminists at the same time. It was like the two were, were complementary in their, in their work for social justice. So it's really interesting. Olympe Gouge was way, way beyond her time, I think. Mm-hmm. So ahead of her time. It'd be interesting to see some of her other work around like children's rights, women's rights. Um, when I read children's rights, I was like, children's rights? Yes. I, I was not, I forgot that was even an issue, to be honest, which I guess that's the whole ignorance thing that we were talking about recently. But guess what? You did the research, you educated yourself. Exactly. <laughs> and now you can't not know it. Exactly. <laughs> so who was our next person who was the next person you we should talk about and learn about we have walter ruther he was an american leader of organized labor and civil rights activists who built the united automobile workers into one of the most progressive labor unions in american history Mm -hmm. and his ideology was that he saw labor movements not as a narrow special like interest groups but as a way to advance social justice and human rights in a democratic setting. So he used the United Automobiles Workers Resources to influence and advocate workers' rights, civil rights, women's rights, universal healthcare, public education, affordable housing, wow. environmental stewardship, nuclear nuclear non-proliferation. I think that's how you yes. pronounce it. Uh-huh. He believed in a Swedish style social democracy. So he wasn't really following the the normal US standard democracy. Mm. And he believed in societal change through nonviolent civil disobedience. So like protests and like like nonviolent protests and like he co-founded the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. It's the largest federation of unions in the United States, and it's made up of 60 national and international workers' unions. Wow. It's made up of more than 12 million active and retired workers. He he was the fourth, the fourth and longest serving president. He was the president for 24 years, up until his death. But he had couple of near misses with deaths he survived two attempted assassinations because his work was so like proactive that he he someone he actually survived an assassination attempt at his home where he got shot in the chest with a 12 gauge shotgun through his kitchen window god and he survived that which i don't know if any of you believe in fate but i call that some some fate right there yes that's some fate right there (laughs) Not one, but two. One at his home. Wow. Wow. Like that would be someone you'd want, you know, so far, just about everyone we've talked about, you know, they're redoing all these movies. I'm like, yo, make some new movies and make them about like the lives of these people, the lives they lived. Olympic would have an interesting movie. Yes. That would be, yes. I mean, you'd have action with Walter Ruther. <laughs> right? Suspense, action, Suspense. and education. Yes, yes. 
Wow. And I'd never heard of him. Yeah, he was, I guess you could say he was one of those people who were like very influential, but kind of kept behind the scenes. Mm. I feel like a lot of the people we've covered, the more impactful people have kind of been like, they're kind of pushed to the side almost. And they kind of, they get quiet. Yeah, Yeah. it does. It does. It makes sense. And so you see who you see out front is not necessarily the person who inspired and is moving everything forward. Yeah. Kind of like an iceberg almost. There's so much more under the tip of the iceberg. Than what we're seeing. And Walter was like that under the tip Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the iceberg person, it sounds like. Yeah. Wow. And so who is, who is our third and final person? Our final person is John Peters Humphrey. He was a Canadian legal scholar, jurist, and human rights activist. And he is, his thing was, he was the principal author of the first draft of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we covered in the first episode with Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. Um, the, so the whole story goes is that the Assistant Secretary General to the United States appointed John Peters Humphrey as the first director of the United Nations Division of Human Rights. Hmm. And he ended up drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and he ended up consulting with the executive group of the commission chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt. And on the night of (laughs) December 10, 1948, the General Assembly unanimously adopted the declaration dubbed by Eleanor Roosevelt herself as the International Magna Carta of All Humankind. Wow. He remains... So he, he was comp, He was a com, um, contemporary. That is, I didn't know that. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. He remains with the United Nations for over 20 years. And during this period, he oversaw the implementation of 67 international conventions and constitutions of dozens of countries. And he worked in areas such as freedom of the press, status of women, and racial discrimination. That's a lot. And the impact he had on people's lives, just, wow. Because even to this day, that human rights, um, that, that laid the foundation for so many of the, the injustices that that can happen in the world now, people being held accountable Mm -hmm. has been based on that human rights, that document, this something then word, and but that's being, you know, um, it has to be enforced, has to be upheld Mm -hmm. by some body of people in in the United Nations to this day still uses that as kind of like it's, it's, it's litmus, as its way to address these social injustices and these these wrongs that people do all over the world and um, the fact that it that he oversaw the implementation of conventions and constitutions internationally yes like he left a permanent like staple on like those topics such as freedom of press and status of women and racial discrimination like that you you can't like take away a constitution or 
like an international convention that's been adopted so Mm. he left he definitely left his mark permanently on the lives of generations generations of many generations yes yeah and I think once again like as we are nearing the end of this final episode I think I mean for me the takeaway is just ordinary people doing extraordinary things and a lot of it has to do with the choices that they are that they make and how those choices then have an impact on what they do with their lives and then how those choices what they do with their lives ends up having an impact on countless other people what what was the takeaway for you as as we wrap up this four weeks for me i guess you could say that like you could have a creative mind and put that creativity towards anything. For example, yes. Olympe de Gouges, she had a creative mind and she decided to make political plays. And like John Peters Humphrey, he was a legal scholar. He took that creativity and knowledge and put it into declaring human rights. Like mm-hmm. if you don't have yeah. to like grow up in any sort of conditions you can just be creative and then have a certain feeling on the right day and decide to change your whole entire life path that is that's really beautiful Robert I like I don't know how to say uh, that was gorgeous I don't know what to say (laughs) as you can see I'm all (laughs) (laughs) tongue-tied but so how would you say if, if you're thinking about these this collective of people, how do they ins- how could their lives inspire white people? I think it could be inspiring because there's so many different things that you could do. It doesn't necessarily have to be one sort of action. It can be anything. And I think all of these people proved it. Like you could be a high schooler, you can make a program, you can make plays, you can be like a TED talk speaker. You could you could be like just a regular, like, well, not regular, but you could be like the first lady and decide to do something with it. It's just, it's however you decide to use your time. Mm. And and the spaces that you you are in, like yes, what you do with that, that the opportunities and the spaces that you occupy. Like Mr. Rogers. Mm. And uh, that episode of Mr. Rogers, where he shared his towel with Officer Clemens, like it, it doesn't have to, it's not one specific thing. It could be anything. Yeah. And I think what, what you're speaking to as well is what I like to call micro actions. So you have macro actions, which are like the things that Peyton Klein and Heather Booth and, um, and uh, Miles Horton and like all these people, John Humphrey, like they had these Olympic gouche, these macro actions that are quite big and can be very visible and they noticeably have impact on people's lives. Like if, if we wanted to put this play on, we could, 
type of thing, right? Like they've left something either behind or they're doing something now that like actively engages people in change. But then we also have those micro actions, those small actions, like what you just said with with Fred Rogers. I mean, he's simply a white man and a black man putting their feet inside of a kiddie pool during a hot summer on a children's TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, had an impact. But that's a, that was a small micro action that anyone could take. And I think that like, when, when white people are trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? I feel, I feel so hopeless. I feel, I feel like I'm going to make a mistake. I feel like, you know what is when you, I don't think that Mr. Rogers thought it was a mistake that he, you know, he shared a towel and he put his feet into the kiddie pool with somebody who was black. You know, I think, I don't think that Peyton Klein, you know, it wasn't a mistake that she chose to recognize what was happening around her and said, this is not good. I want to change this. We're going to start having conversations and we're going to, you know, like, and it started out small. It started out probably as conversations, seriously, like organizing a space where people can just talk. And once again, who was it that, was it Miles Horton that talked about having conversations with people? Like his his focus was on bringing people together in, in spaces and then just having conversations and learning from one another? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, because yes, it was, because he grew up in West Tennessee. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that's kind of my takeaway from this is any action that's done thoughtfully with clarity of purpose that that do, that is a is a trying to address a, a something that is an issue of social justice i think if it's done with the right intention and with the openness of heart and with an understanding of how you might be showing up as a white person in a space like if you understand how you're showing up in a space as a white person you know not to take over the conversation you know like that if if you're feeling uncomfortable cuz you know black people or brown people are are expressing their feelings or their frustrations and you're feeling uncomfortable with that you get to ask yourself why am i feeling uncomfortable with that and what do i need to change about the way i'm approaching them sharing their lives why am i have why am i feeling defensive why do i feel the need to like speak up for myself when you know like really and once again i think like this is what makes it sometimes so difficult this work for white people is 
we just don't know what we don't know, right? Like you don't know until you're in a space and you think, you know, you got this all down, you know, you got black friends, you all about going to the protests, you know, everything's copacetic. And then you find yourself in a space where someone says something that challenges your understanding as a white person. And that can be really hard because then that requires you to look inside yourself and say, okay, I, I do have things I can still learn. There's things I can still change. And I feel like for these people to have had the impact that they've had on people's lives, I imagine, I can only imagine, they had to be in that space all the time. You know, being able to, to change behavior and just see how they're showing up in a space as a white person. Yeah. So this was it. This is the last conversation. It was great getting a chance to talk with you. What's it been like for you? I learned, I enjoyed talking and doing the research. I learned a lot. And like I have been saying, I love learning new things and I love knowledge. And I really appreciate these conversations. And I'm going to carry the knowledge that I learned for the rest of my life. Yeah, thank you. And I am going to carry the knowledge that you, like the things you found out, these are things that are going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And um, will help me to understand people better. Well, you want to take us out, Rob? You want to kind of do our closing, tell people where they can find the podcast and where they can find the content in social media? Yeah, sure. So the podcast is on Pocket Google Casts, and Spotify, and the people we learned about will be on Instagram and TikTok. Yes, and the TikTok and Instagram channels are called Inspire Cycle Breakers. So if you do that search, you'll find them. And so once again, um, we are going to wrap this up. This is going to be, this is our final episode. Um, my name is Adelia. I am, and this is my intern, Rob. And this is it. Um, if you uh, want to learn more about my course, Our Moral Imperative, a revolutionary change in white America, I encourage you to go visit my website. And it's our O-U-R Moral M-O-R-A-L dot com. Ourmoral.com, all one word. Um, you can look at the seven-week course I offer for white people who are wanting to really do a deep dive and do some, some um, hopefully lifelong transformation and changes so that they can show up in, in uh, these anti-racism spaces and do a great job of being a cycle breaker. So thank you all very much for listening. We wish you well. And when I do another podcast in the future, hopefully you'll listen to that one too. Thank you all.